We Infuse Podcast, episode number 50. Welcome to the We Infuse Podcast. My name is Amanda Brummett. In every episode, we give you a seat at the table as we talk to Infusion Center owners, operators, and experts so that you can get the insight you need to run a thriving practice. In this episode, we talk with Eric Kropp. If Eric's name sounds familiar, it is probably because it is. We have talked about the Emily Jerry story in previous episodes with Chuck DiTropano and Chris Jerry. In today's episode, Eric shares his personal story with a medication error that forever changed his life, how he became a patient safety advocate, and ways we can make medication administration safer for patients and caregivers. Well, as I said, I'm here today with Eric Kropp, and many of you have um, heard about Eric, both from Chris Jerry and from Chuck DiTrapano, and thank you so much for being here today, Eric. I would love if you would start with telling us all how did you get into healthcare? How did you become a pharmacist in the first place? Thank you for allowing me to be here to tell my story and get get to know me better. Um, I've always wanted to be a pharmacist since I was probably ninth, ninth grade in high school. We had a program called Explorers. And you could go and shadow a different career in the medical field. And I was able to shadow a pharmacist and see what they did in the hospital setting. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And this was the time when we really didn't have all the computers. In every, so you were still typing labels on typewriters and you you made a lot of things from scratch. And so I, it was really fascinating to me. And what really made me want to become a pharmacist is I got, I was walking on the railroad tracks with some friends of mine and we were just kind of throwing rocks and stuff. And I stepped on a wasp nest and I had a bad reaction because they stung me all in my legs. So they, dragged me over to the pharmacy that was in town and the pharmacist was smart enough to go and get an EpiPen at the time and give it to me. So I would, uh, and gave me some Benadryl and I was able to be okay until the rescue squad came. But it, it, I just saw that was incredible that pharmacists took the action of taking care of me and helping me out because we were a small town. So the nearest hospital was quite a ways away. So he reacted well. And what was interesting is my first year out of pharmacy school, I was able to re do the same deed to another patient by a lady was coming in from outside and she got stung and she, her whole face was blowing up and getting red and everything. And I was able to give her an EpiPen and help calm her down and, you know, call the police, uh, ambulance and everything. So I was like, wow, that is such a cool thing that I was able to repay what happened to me to another person. So that definitely made me even more want to, to get involved and get more into the pharmacy career. So I worked retail for quite a few years and then I wanted to go back and get my PharmD. So I said, I probably would do better if I worked in a hospital because I had more people to talk to if I had questions because a lot of the coursework was do it at home online. So I was an opportunity came about. I had done some other hospital work um, a couple of times. Um, as a second job. So I had some experience in the hospital, but I wanted to get more. So when I got the opportunity to come and work at the university hospital, I jumped at the opportunity and they said, well, we're really shorthanded in peds. And I thought, well, that I love kids. And they said they um, had needed somebody who knew about uh, chemotherapy. And that was one of the things I studied uh, as an extra residency after I got done with school. So I, I thought, wow, I can learn more about how to help kids. And, and so that made it a great learning experience. So I got a lot of training during the, that year and 
unfortunately, on a cold day in February in Cleveland, we were always famous for having bad snowstorms and everybody getting the flu all at the same time. And it was a weekend. And um, I remember we had celebrated Emily's birthday on Friday because she was in-house and her father had wanted to get her uh, her last treatment because she was actually cured from her disease. So we all attended the party. We saw her riding around on her big wheel up and down the hallways and everything. We all took turns going and take get cake and wish her a happy birthday. So I knew Emily and I always thought it was interesting that she had a boy and a girl's name being Emily Jerry. And so her name always stuck to me. So I said, I want to see what this little girl looks like. And when we would do rounds, I got to meet her and she just had such a wonderful personality. You, you just felt the energy that she, she didn't act like she was sick. It was the most, she handled all the treatments so well. So on the day that this air occurred, I had got called in, I had worked two double shifts, the, the Thursday, Friday and Saturday. So I was pretty tired and they had asked me to come in because we were shorthanded. So right there was uh, a red flag that I shouldn't have come in because I was really tired. And then when I saw that the whole system had been down for 10 hours, I really should have got on the phone and started calling other people to try to come in because it was just two pharmacists at our end of it. And the other pharmacist I was working with, he was a little bit nervous and new at this. So he wasn't handling it. Me, unfortunately, being a type A personality, I was like, I'm going to get this taken care of. And by the time we got the labels going, we had been answering phones all morning, trying to get all the things that people needed. And we had not been able to print out any kind of fill list. So we didn't know what IVs needed made. We didn't have labels that print out for the IVs. We didn't have a list to, for, for the drawers where the nurse could get the meds from their um, med drawers. It was kind of chaotic and a, and a mess. So when the labels all came out, we had all of the labels that have, should have been sent from the night, the morning, and as well as the afternoon. So we had to sort it all out, try to get some of the morning doses out, fix those up. Well, we were like the smallest part of the hospital, very small pharmacy, and things started to build up very fast. And we had probably a normal picnic table type size table that you did all the checking and we would put everything in bins. Well, we ran out of bins and they were starting to pile everything on top of each other, which was another red flag that, you know, I, I should have told everybody to stop. Let's get this stuff checked. Go on to the next thing, fill up some more things to check. And then another dangerous thing is I had three techs filling, uh, making IVs in one hood and two in another hood. So there was again, opportunity of grabbing someone else's stuff, um, mixing things up, another red flag. So there's all these little factors that I was catching things that were wrong, but, but it was like, I was feeling really overwhelmed at that time when this was occurring. And uh, around, we were still playing catch up around 11, 1130 or so, the nurse from the floor called and said, can we make sure Emily's uh, chemotherapy is done on the floor because we're going to send her home after her treatment. So knowing that she, they were going to be going off on a vacation and, you know, we all treated the situation. It wasn't really needed right away. I didn't know if they were going to give the dose until four o'clock. The nurse was saying it needed to be done by 12. So we, we did everything, but we still had everything else piled up that day. And when the technician mixed up 
the, I went and pulled out the drugs and, and double checked everything. And she went and started making the base solution. And we had a very bad policy at the time where we made, because kids can only take a small volume of fluid at a time. We would make our own D5 normal saline. We'd make our own like dextrose and, and water sometimes. And sometimes we had to make it from bigger bags because we'd run out of the little stuff beginning a long weekend and um, sometimes we didn't get restocked until Monday. So a lot of times we'd take a large 250 or even a 500 bag and put it into a smaller, you know, either make it into a syringe with the volume needed or we put it in a bag with the volume. Needed. So that wasn't uncommon in the in our, our way of doing things, especially on a weekend. So when she made the first chemo drug for Emily, it was only for um, five cc's. So she she made her own D five and a half, and then we added two cc's of drug to the syringe. And I think when she made the next one, she thought in her brain when she saw that it had to have normal saline in it, she thought, "Oh, I'll just take, pull it out of the of the vials." And she pulled out 148 mLs from three vials because it was so chaotic, and she already used some of the normal saline. And the first one, she threw only one vial in there. So I assumed that vial meant for the first bag. And then she had syringes drawn out for the 148 mLs for the, for the other um, bag that she was getting. And I assumed she just took it from a bag that was sitting on the counter because we would, again, took like made our own solution a lot of time. So there was a red flag. I asked, is this normal saline in her? Not realizing she did not understand the difference between 0.9% and point, um, excuse me, uh, the, the concentrated dosage as well. So we went ahead, I, we added the chemo drugs to them and then we were sent up. Well, they sat for a while and we tried to catch up the rest of the day, getting things out. And then unfortunately that afternoon when they gave the second chemo right away there was something wrong emily was crying she was saying she had hurt and she was in a lot of pain and unfortunately during the confusion they kept the iv going instead of stopping it and by the time i called the technician because she had already gone home to ask what she had done and when she finally explained me to me that she took it out of the vials i knew right away what was wrong so being I was the only one on duty, I was trying to make sure we were trying to flush out a much, as much of the sodium out of her body. I didn't know they didn't stop the IV right away. So she had gotten a large dose. Being that she was getting all the sodium in her body, she was requesting liquids. So her family was giving her soda pop, which also had sodium in it. So we were adding to the issue. And so it, unfortunately... By the time we got supportive care for her, she already was drifted off into a coma. And I didn't get any communication. They really didn't want me to come to the PICU where she was in. And I really wanted to go and help in whatever way I could. But I had to get through the rest of the shift, fill all the carts and, and you know, check everything and get everything done for the hospital. In the meantime, I was trying to call my supervisor and anybody else to come in because I really needed someone to take over because I was pretty devastated at the time. By the time my shift was over, I, I, 
I felt pretty horrible. I don't know how, I don't even remember driving home that night. Um, the next day I came in and they basically told me what had happened. I didn't know all the full details and basically decided that they were going to dismiss me at the time as well as technicians. She would already been dismissed first thing in the morning. I was pretty much, wow. I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was like, first they tested me for drugs and all that. Just, they were like, why did you catch all this? I said, did you realize what kind of day I was having that day and everything and how chaotic and I was trying to get somebody to come in. And this is where it's really important to have some kind of um, group set up when you work in a hospital or even in a retail setting, somebody for that pharmacist to talk to, call up on if some error occurs because you really need that person to, to move out of that, that area where they made the mistake and have someone step in, give the supportive care to the patient and get them out so that they can calm down, get their emotions in, in order, maybe send home, you know, so that they, they can feel a little bit better. Cause I was just like under so much pressure that I, I was like a, like a time capsule about to explode. I was, I was feeling horrible when it happened. So when they dismissed me, they did do an investigation. And I don't know if you talked about that with Chris before, but they did say it was a system error as well as the fact that there wasn't sufficient um, education for that technician. So I thought I was, pretty much not, I, I, knew, I knew I was involved in the mistake, but I was pretty much, it was understand that I try, tried to ask the right questions, but it, what, during the circumstances, I didn't ask enough, you know? So after that, I, I didn't know what to do because I was pretty much messed, my head was not on, on right. And I, I even thought of doing harm to myself. And during my research after this happened, I found out that we, as a profession, pharmacists are one of four, or four groups that have the highest suicide levels, doctors, pharmacists, nurses, and dentists, for some reason. I still thought that was interesting, too. But we have a really high suicide rate because there's we've been taught and, and learned that you didn't talk about an error. You don't use it as a learning experience. Don't use it to teach other people. Um, and... It's something you, a lot of people, as I've been lecturing around, have been telling me, I had this air when I first came out of school. I've been working 30 years and I still, it's always bothered me and I've, and I've had no one to talk about it with. And you made me finally want to talk about it. And it was just like, it's amazing at end of when I give a lecture, how many people open up and say, I feel a relief because I've never had nobody to tell that this happened and how this has happened to other people I know. And, you know, we've don't, they, there's just not a really great support system for how many who even a nurse, doctor, pharmacist has made an error, what to do, you know? And unfortunately I got investigated by the state board of pharmacy. Um, they were raring to try to get, they were trying to find any way to get me to get my license taken away. And when I, I appeared for the board of pharmacy, unfortunately, the I was kind of thrown on the bus by the hospital and they said, they said a lot of stuff that kind of said that I was responsible. 
even though it was a multitude of problems. So when I came in, they were all holding pictures of Emily. And so the whole um, court, well, the whole session with the board, I had to sit and look at pictures of Emily and I'm already feeling horrible enough, but they all were like shining them at me as I, and by then I finally got a little bit of help, but it was hard because when I went to try to get any kind of counseling, they first sent me to a group that dealt with people who were, who made mistakes or stuff because they were under the influence of alcohol or doing drugs. And they sent me to that group and I'm like, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not, I don't have these issues. I just was fortunately made a mistake or not catching something. So finally, I just finally found somebody who could counsel me and she knew how to deal with somebody who had made an error. She dealt with other doctors and pharmacists and nurses. So it finally was given, but unfortunately they put me on so many medications that I had no emotions. So when I went to the board, I just looked like I didn't care. My way of dealing things is I twiddle my thumbs and I remember Chris saying, you have no, you don't have no, you don't care. Look at you just sitting there twiddling your thumbs. You, you, you're not even upset. You're not even showing any emotion. And unfortunately, when you they put you on all these meds, you don't. And I looked like, I really looked very guilty, very, you know, and by the time it was my turn to, to defend myself after all these different people testified, they didn't allow my people to testify. They didn't allow other pharmacists who had worked in the setting that I worked, who said it was a dangerous situation talk. And I was pretty much, I, I had one person that was allowed to say anything. And then they were like, well, we're done for the day and we're going to make a decision and we'll look back to you. Well, within a half hour, they decided to take my license away. And unfortunately, the lawyer that I had hired did not tell me I could have um, been able to challenge this and try to reinstate my license. So by the time I found out, it was already six months, I didn't challenge it anymore. So, but, and, but during that six months, I already had now, I was, while I was at home, I was being harassed now because it was an article in the Plain Dealer saying what I was, that I was a killer and all this horrible things. The media was just beating me up. And then I was contacted by a district attorney that now they were going to do civil charges against me. And what they usually do when they do these cases, and I see that with the nurse that's being going on, who went on trial down in Tennessee, is they keep piling on all these different charges, trying to get one charge to stick. And we kept fighting. My, my lawyers were really good at keep challenging. And, and we would, you know, unfortunately, they found an old law from the 1800s that anything that's misbranded and the fact that the solution that was inside the bag was not what was saying it that it said on the label. It was considered misbranding and it was considered a felony. So my lawyers tried to say, well, it's so hard when you're putting a clear solution into another clear solution. You know, we're taking faith in the technicians that they're putting the right thing in. And we're, we're we take faith that they understand how to do the calculations and they know what, understand what the drugs are used for. And I really learned that back in that time that 
they don't really, they didn't know really a lot. A lot of them were trained on the job. Uh, my technician, she only had a GED and was trained for six weeks on the job. So that's why she didn't understand. She knew the basic algebra that you needed to figure out the, the, the diluents and stuff like that to add to the, um, to the bags and stuff. But she, that was her basic knowledge. And, um, after what happened to me and when I was put into jail, um, Chris and his uh, wife, Kelly, they worked hard when they found out how little education was out there for the technicians. They worked on developing Emily's Law in Ohio, and they at the time wanted to make sure a technician had at least two years of, of education. They had to take a test to, to show competency. Um, they were supposed to have so many hours on the job, like as an intern, being trained in, a, in an actual IV room. Um, the ratio of technicians to pharmacists was supposed to be no more than three to one. Um, there was a bunch of things that got watered down when they, we finally got passed. They did, they basically got where all technicians in, in Ohio were, were to be certified but there was no required education. So they still don't need to go to school. So anybody could just read the book to, and then take the test. Um, they still don't need any you know, college education or anything like that. They just, as long as they have a GED. Um, so that, it, I know um, when Chris and, and um, Kelly worked on us, it was very watered down. It was, it was, I think they worked on the ratio. It's still like five to one for pharmacists to technician, which is really hard to see how you can see everything that they do. Um, it, it was very, it, it started a process of waking up the country that we needed to change, especially both pharmacy and technicians. Um, they, they definitely see that there was a huge ratio of technicians to one pharmacist. I mean, I was overseeing six uh, technicians and one pharmacist. I mean, that was a very big ratio and it was just too many opportunities to miss something. Um, I know when, unfortunately, when I got put into jail, there was still nothing in place, like how to handle a, pharma a pharmacist, a nurse, a doctor, or what to do when they do make a mistake. And a big thing during when it happened is they really wanted to increase the amount of reporting of errors. And everybody was scared to report their errors because, okay, we just saw Mr. Kropp get sent to jail. And we are hearing other cases where, you know, a nurse was, was went to, um, I was fortunate enough to meet a nurse and Chuck Dunham, who came to me when I was in jail and I had not been able to, I never really talked to anybody who had gone through what I went to. And the nurse, her name, first name was Julie. And she had accidentally, when she went in the Pixis machine, she, she was able to override. And this is still a big issue, which I want to talk about. There's still the, this ability to override the Pixis machine and grab something that it, it sounds like, looks like from the, the machine and give it out wrong. And I, we see this over and over, especially in nursing, because one, they're by themselves a lot or in there in an emergency situation, they're rushing. Um, and nobody's doing a double check on them, you know, when they're giving the medication. 
And this had this same thing happened to her. She ended up um, the, the mother, she, which she worked in labor and delivery, and she ended up giving a, a drug that paralyzed the mother. And she ended up she stopped breathing and she passed away. And she has to live with that the rest of her life. And it was again, it was a, a simple override of the machine. The medications look they were they sound alike, look alike, and she grabbed it. And she had dispensed these medicines before in the past, but again, it was just one of those, you 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 do so much in, in so many hours, so you, your eyes get tired, your mind gets tired. And I, she said she had worked, a lot, like myself, she had worked a long day, was it like a 10 hour shift, 12 hour shift. So again, we really need to be making sure that the, the people who are on, on the job are getting their breaks, getting their lunches, getting time, if it gets busy, we need to be able to say, hey, we need to stop. No more orders until we play catch up or take a little five minute breather so that everybody is clear again. And this is something that both when I left lectured with Chris and, and I've lectured on my own, I've seen hospital after hospital tell me. And the one that really stood out to me is when I went and gave a speech to the military out in San Diego they have ability to hit a button and it just freezes everything. The nurses can't add anything into the computer. Doctors can't, it just has to be put, it's put in a hold so that it gives time for pharmacy to catch up because if you're just constantly bombarded with huge loads, you're, you're, you're just overwhelmed and then you, you're, you can't, you're, it just becomes like an assembly line production and you're not caring what you're doing because you're just trying so hard to get this done. So they have these opportunities where you can just stop everything, catch up, make, they'll make sure that if it's emergency dose, get to the patient. But most of the time, if it's something emergency, they can get it right away out of the Pixis machine or something. So it was really not something pharmacy has to rush anyway. So I was, I found one wonderful thing when I've been lecturing over and over is everybody's proud of one thing or two things or, or several things that they've done in their hospital that's making things change and make things safer. And I love this because I can, I have like a general, a huge list of, and each one of them like is so excited. They brag about it. And I can, and because I'm talking to multiple groups and larger numbers, I, I give those ideas out to other people and say, hey, this is an inexpensive way that it's going to make it safer. They've tried this in their hospital and they've been able to reduce the number of errors from, say, 21% to 7%, you know. So you're seeing actual results. And that made me feel really excited that, they're, you know, we are trying to make changes. And it doesn't always have to cost millions of dollars to do this. It's slowing down, educating sharing from department to department. I met down in Texas, um, this hospital called Providence. They sit down every day for about 45 minutes and every person from every department sends one to two people and they talk about any issues that involve, they're involved with and they see what other departments can do to help them or they can help the other department. They can see if there's drug shortages and where it might be located. And so they have a whiteboard that goes around the whole room and they're able to share from, oh, we have this difficult patient. 
And we know that this works. If so, if they're sent to radiology or sent to physical therapy, this is what you should do to deal with that patient. Or, you know, we keep having the same medication being grabbed wrong. We want to know that, let you guys all flag this, put a sign up, say, this is, this is being grabbed wrong, or this is being mixed up wrong. So they're nipping about, instead of having this happen shift after shift, they're nipping it in the butt every day. And they've noticed their amount of errors reduced close to zero because they're talking about it. They're, you know, yeah, they're utilizing a lot of technology, but they're also utilizing the simplest things, talking to each other, not saying it's your fault and blaming a, a department. They're saying, how can I help this department? And I just thought that was the most amazing thing. And I saw and saw how it was making a difference because I talked to, I was lucky enough to talk to three different shifts. I talked to night shift, day shift, and evening shift. So they all were sharing me what worked at that hospital. And I was like, got to sit in in a meeting and I was just blown away. And I said, I said, this has got to be shared with other places that you need to sit down and, you know, try to do this. Even if it's once a week, if they can't do it, but do it as often as possible and, you know, have these alerts. If the ED keeps having this problem of they override the pixels machine and they're picking the wrong med, let the ICU know if, because they're using probably the same drugs or another department, share that knowledge so that we can stop it from occurring. And so I know I've kind of gone on a long tangent, but it, no, it's a good tangent. I, I really also during the time that this happened, um, Dennis Quaid had two twins were born to him and there was a big universal statewide, even in the other countries where the wrong happened was beginning to babies over and over. And it needed him to step up. And not take blame to the people in the hospital, but to see how he and the people that work in the hospital could change if it was changing the labeling, um, having everybody talk about it. But that was like one of the big motivators, I think, at the time. This was around when I was put into jail. Him speaking out and the Jerry's working on trying to get proper training for the technicians and it was just amazing. Like it was like the the new birth of patient safety, um, safety for caregivers. It, it started where we were talking about it, and we were trying to this this strip away that stigma. Of, oh, you made a mistake. How how stupid of you? Why would you do that? What were you thinking? And these are things you don't want to say to that person. You need to say. Oh, I'm, I feel bad that that happened. Let's see what we can do to fix this so it doesn't happen to somebody else. Um, let's write this up and share it. And, and, and it can be an educational thing that we can pass on to students. We can pass on to doctors, nurses, whoever. And that was another thing when I was doing talks. A lot of people in the different institutions were starting to do that, where they were writing up these case studies and sharing them. And people it would, after they read it, they go, oh, this, this occurred to, to, in this department or this person. I need to be more careful. I need to stop, think about it, watch what I'm doing and not in, and, and be careful. And again, that was starting to make people 
slow down, stop getting in that mentality of we're in a reduction line. We got to get everything done get it up and, you know, and realize these are people that could be your parents or uh, family members, your friends. We, we had to take the, make sure that these people are the most important people in, during your shift. You know, they're like, I, I, I always thought of everybody as that's my, could be my mom, my dad, whatever. And I really thought that was just a good attitude to have that, you know, we have to stop blame and, and start learning and stop hiding from the system. We, you know, it, it's always hard to train people that are older, but you would be amazed that once you start giving them examples of this occurs, they'll they break down those walls, those barriers to you. You've got, you know, you're still always going to have that one person. I've never made an error, but you down the line know we're all human. It's going to happen. They made errors when they were in school. They made it, you know, they made an error when they were working for a 36 hour shift. They, it might've been something simple and, and it was either caught or it didn't hurt anybody, but there, something happened. So our, I think this whole movement that Chris and I and many others that in all the institutions are doing, it's, it's the only way we, ha- we can make things work in the future. We have to reduce the number of errors. When uh, we first were talking, we, re- we researched and we found that there was over 200,000 medical errors each year. And half of them were pharmacy. Half of them were in like surgery in the medical setting. Right. So that was scary. And when Chris does a lecture, he'll show like... Um, several planes lined up and he'll say, this is how many plane loads of people that die from medical air in a time, in a certain time period. And that I hadn't seen that for a while because we hadn't lectured in a while and we did Mm -hmm. one together. And that blew me away because I'm like, wow, when you put it in a sense of all these people died on a plane, it, it made that 2000 and more people, 200,000 people sound that's a lot of people we're losing, you know, it's, it's a horrible situation. We got to do something to stop that. Yeah. So being, I don't have a, a license anymore. I'm not a pharmacist. And I said, well, what can I do with my life after I got, you know, I had that unfortunate time in jail. Um, what a funny story I'll tell you when I was in jail, the first or second day I was in there, I'm like looking at faces and I'm going, oh my God, I know this person. Oh my God, I know this person. These are all the people I used to turn away for narcotics. Oh, and no. I'm going, they kept looking at me like, you look so familiar. And I'm like, oh, I just have a familiar face. But knowing that all these people I had turned away because they were, a lot of them were in jail because they were addicted to drugs or were selling drugs. And I'm like, what an awful situation I was in. So I had, I, I it just, it blew me away to, you know, so pretty much by the time, one of the things that made my job hard when I was in jail is everybody knew my story. I don't, when I was in jail, I didn't know all the other people, what they were in for, but right. because I was on the front page of the, of our plane dealer newspaper, they had posted it right in the, I was in like a quad, which was like, there was 28 people in one room and they was posted right there. So everybody knew what I had done. So that just set me up for people thinking I had money to come after me. They thought, you know, I could get a hold of stuff. It, so it made my another obstacle to deal with when I was in, in jail, you know, because I'm trying to, you know, do my time and, and 
not get in trouble and, and, and just get through this. And I was thinking of ways of what I could do when I got out of there, you know, yeah. but I'm also thinking over my shoulder, is they going to come after me, do something? Cause I, you know, they were realizing I was that one who said no to getting their drugs and stuff. Right. So right. It was an interesting time. So um, I'm curious, what, what was the turning point for you? We, we, we talked about your worst day and all the then horrific stuff that followed. Mm -hmm. And we jumped a little bit to some of the cool things you've done since then, which I want to get more into, but can you share like, at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to commit the rest of my life to being a patient safety advocate because some of the stuff you've done is amazing. And it takes a lot of fortitude to dig out of that sad place and being sad about what happened. Yeah. I just, what made me change is, when I got that opportunity to meet Julie, when she came in, when I was um, in jail and she, you know, you're not supposed to touch anybody when you're in jail. And she made the mistake. She hugged me and she whispered in my ear, I'm there. I'm, I'm, I'm on your, I'm on your side. It made me realize I wasn't alone because she went through the court system. She was, was going to be put in jail if they allowed her to to serve her time at home and everything. I realized that I, when I talked to her and what she was doing, I said, maybe I can do, do something as a patient advocate. And um, and one of the, what also helped in this situation is is the judge wanted me to do public speaking for 400 hours. And I'm like, Oh my, how am I going to do this? Because I'm also on house arrest. So I had that wonderful black, black bracelet around my ankle. So I'm like, I have to figure out how am I going to go around on my own dime, talk to all these people and, get, you know, tell my story and tell them how, what I want to do in the future. So, but during that time, I, I got over, I was like, big deal. I had this ankle bracelet, big deal. I, I mean, I, I have to figure out ways. I, re- I had people reach out to me, which was like a blessing. Um, a gentleman from FarmCon contacted me and said, how would you like to like do a bunch of uh, podcasts that we could do? You get the credit for it. And then you call in and answer the questions at the end. So that was able. So I didn't have to go through security through the airports when I was going to all these places trying to do it helped lessen the burden on me because sometimes it would take me four hours to get through the airport just to, to prove that I wasn't trying to escape Ohio or whatever so you know that was an asshole but by the time I was done I, I wanted to continue doing these talks and I knew when from these talks I was getting more and more people reaching out to me saying this happened to me I made this mistake I, I was getting people when I was um, doing talks, I, I'm going through the same thing you're going through. What can I do? So I was able to sit down with them and give them some direction. And I thought, wow, I feel like, yes, I'm, I'm starting to pay it forward, trying to take my bad situation and help somebody else so they don't go through the same roller coaster that I went through. So I was able to write letters. I was able to testify in court when individuals, I I went for four different nurses and about five different pharmacists and went for their hearings um, to the board meet, a board hearings as well and and did all I could giving them examples of why this shouldn't escalate of losing your license because this is what 
this is, you know, when you learn to be a pharmacist, nurse, a doctor, you don't learn anything else. This is what you want to do the rest of your life. So it's really hard. If you take their license away, they're pretty much lost. And I'll go into another thing that when you do this, you take this, this license away and it's, it's really hard for us to find direction where to go. There's nobody there to say, Hey, we're going to help you find another career. We're going to help you move forward. You're going to either lead into feeling bad for yourself, wanting to hurt yourself. Um, I unfortunately learned if I would have known there was a nurse out in Seattle who she ended up killing herself because she didn't know what to do with herself. She had been a nurse for 23 years and she was an excellent ICU nurse. And she happened to make a decimal point mistake and gave too much sodium um, potassium chloride to somebody and then killing the patient. And they handled it like they handled my situation. The nurse was let go. She lost her license and like, she didn't know what to do with her life. And that's one of, part of my thing is I'm trying to convince people we have to talk. We can't hide this. We can't have people keep hurting themselves because they lost their livelihood. They lost their ability to get up in the morning. So I do talk about that with, with individuals. I make sure, do you have someone to talk to when I find out they've had an heir? Um, is there some, do you guys have a, a second victim, third victim program established at your institution? And as you asked, what else? What, what, that motivated me. I had I worked with Nationwide Children's Hospital down in Columbus, and they started their own uh, program where they were training individuals in each department. So if something happened, those people could step in, do the job, counsel the person that made the mistake, make sure they're out of the system, out of there, make sure everything's recorded. There's self uh, self care for the caregiver as well as making sure the patient is okay. So I, I I was amazed that they did this. And it was, you know, this started with a uh, University of Missouri a nurse out there. Um, her uh, last name is Carr. She started a program out there. And it, I was lucky enough to hear a lecture. I went to, I was giving a lecture and she gave a lecture and she was starting this program all over Missouri. And she was like trying to teach other like um, social workers and, and, other people who would need to step in when an error occurred, how to develop these programs in their institutions. And I just thought, this is amazing. This is going to help so much. I wish this was available when I was happening. So I have stepped in and like looked at when hospitals have been starting these programs, I've helped them where I thought they might've forgotten something or what I learned from what didn't do well at when, when they introduced it at another hospital, they've shared what's worked and what didn't work. So I feel like I've become a good communicator between hospitals as well as between pharmacists. And it's not just in the hospital setting. I have reached out and jumped in to help the retail pharmacists as well as doctors who are working at their other um offices with their nurses and stuff. And we had, we do so much chemotherapy in the clinic setting. I have reached out to them about making sure they have programs set up too, because there's a, there's an opportunity for a mistake to happen. I've, I unfortunately had cancer myself five years ago and they do have an amazing check system to make sure you, they're looking at the chart. They have another nurse reading through the IV, checking it, 
Like they, they have a system where two pharmacists have to check the, the, the compounding together. So I'm seeing all these major changes that happened in the last 16 years that weren't, weren't going when I was involved in it during my around 2006 when this happened. So it's been amazing, you know, being the on the opposite side, being the patient, I've seen what's working and, you know, they're asking all the right questions. Are you allergic? You know, what's your, what hand do you write? And they're asking all the right things. And like when they had to treat my, um, the, the cancer tumor, they made sure they wrote it down. They wrote it on my leg, what was what the tumor was and everything. So there was a double check even for them. If they had to look to see what was needed to be treated there, it's right there and ink on you. So I'm seeing it again. It's not just pharmacy. It's, I'm seeing it in surgery. I was seeing it in, in the oncology setting. So, you know, when it, things are not perfect. Unfortunately, COVID made it, made it a lot of, it was hard. I've noticed so many people, unfortunately, getting sick now because they waited so long to get treatments and everything. And that, that, that the whole, our whole jump of making sure people are getting taken care of got put on hold because we were, we're trying to protect them, but a lot of people didn't get the right treatments from eating their mental meds to getting the right um, test to prevent cancer. So I'm, that's another thing I'm like talking about. How are you dealing with that? You're, you're seeing somebody that's now stage four and it could have been caught if they had to come in during COVID. So again, it's another thing where I thought counseling was should have been involved because the nurses were taking it personally, the physicians were taking it personally, and even some of the pharmacists, because they did rounds and they talked to those patients and they felt, wow, if we only had stepped in sooner, we could have helped them. So it's, I mean, it's not necessarily a medical error, but it's, it's an error in that we didn't give the care to the patient in the timely period. So yeah, that's it. I, I just, I, I've, I've tried to take my whole negative situation and, and try to be as positive as possible. I mean, I still, you, you have guilt. You always will. You wish you, I, I mean, I still relive that day in dreams and I'm like, I'm always trying to fix it. But I figure if I can let people know and they think about, you know, they need to slow down. They need to be, you know, very accurate when it comes to doing chemo. I've gone to, you know, I've lectured about what they should do now. And I've seen so many um, institutions that do oncology have, you know, they don't do um, chemotherapy on the weekends anymore They because there's not enough staffing. So they make sure there's always two pharmacists on duty. Um, they make sure that the, the oncology is separate from the IV room and it's like that they only use manufactured solutions. There's no making any kind of thing from scratch, even if it's taking some solution, uh, they're only taking it from the bag and that the two people are checking that to make sure it's coming from a bag if it has to be only three MLs or something. But they have really, there's a big checklist, just like how now the airplane pilots go through before you fly down, there's checklists now in the pharmacies when they're dealing with making chemotherapy or making any drugs for their ICU, there's a checklist. And, you know, going and lecturing, I, I got to learn what's been working in the, in the hospitals um, from what, having cameras set up so that you can see if you're working on the floor, you can see the technician, you can replay 
the whole process. You can see them drying out from the vial. You can see the vial sitting out. You can see the syringe. So you're seeing all these steps that you don't didn't see before because you were watching over seven technicians and you can't be there at all at the same time. So now there's ability to go on the computer and actually watch them make everything. So you can do, do the, a, a double check and people are able to care. The bar scanning, if that would have been induced, uh, introduced when it was supposed to at my hospital, it could have caught this there at least 10 times from her grabbing the vials to me scanning to see what she had used because I would have had to scan. Oh, she didn't use that. She used the vials. I would have said, oh, you got to make this again. This is the wrong thing. That And that frustrates uh, Chris and myself so much because when institutions like um, from grocery stores to the clothing lines, they, they scan everything. Why can't you get this in the hospital systems? It's, it's still like less than 20%, I think he, he and I looked it up, that is still, there's so many places that don't use bar scanning. And it, that, that, that's something that is such an easy catch. I mean, retail has really utilized that from, they take the picture, they, it, they blow up the picture so that they can see. So there's no way of, of looking at the label and missing something from the, in, in the numbers to the strength. So that is made. I, I think that's a wonderful thing. The new testing of the solution now, they test the specific gravity and they have these machines that will identify what drug is in there and what concentrations because of the specific gravity. And I think that's wonderful because that blow, you know, when you are taking clear to clear, you, you're, you're, you're like praying that's what they put in there because you're not, you, know, you can't see everything. What's in, you know, if everything's in a clear solution. There's no difference in color or anything like that. So those, and they're, they're getting quite inexpensive. They're not as expensive as I thought they were. And some uh, companies have come out with, they're like $5,000. But if you think of how many things they could catch, not causing an error, that's, it's amazing. So I, the one thing being that I worked in the past on was coming up with a system that could check your calculations. I was a pharmacist and I worked volunteer to work at night and you were the only pharmacist on duty and you had no way of checking your math. And I, at the time I knew several institutions were trying to come up with a system that you could go and plug your numbers in and it'd be a fail safe way of checking your math. A nurse could do this on if she was um, calculating a dose for an IV or changing an IV. It was another set of eyes, even though it wasn't a real person. It was the way if you were doing the calculation, if it didn't come up right, you would knew, no, you did something wrong. You need to redo it or, you know, call somebody and have them double check you. But I, I think that was, I've seen several institutions in my time working out and talking that have introduced that to, especially when you work in a small hospital and maybe only have 120 beds to 200 beds and you don't have the staff, like where you maybe have two nurses on, on, and on a floor and we're at either ends of the floor. So they can't always check the insulin. They can't, you know, dosages against each other. So there, there's, there's new programs that they, it'll, you know, go through, go through their MAR. And it'll 
show it and it'll show them actual pictures. This is what should be drawn up. So they they have something to almost double check. It sounds simple, but it's 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 a nice thing to double check on when you don't have another set of eyes. So I've seen other systems where you know they you like I said before, you can go on the computer and you it, it it save everything. So you don't you're not live watching it. You can be checking it later on. But if you if you go, you can go. Oh, you, we need to pull that IV because this didn't look right. We need to remake it. And you, you don't have to go into all the details. You just say, this, you don't feel comfortable and they can remake it, but they can catch it before it goes, you know, when they're doing the checking of the IVs, that's the time when they can double check to see how everything was made. So all these things I think have made pharmacy easier and made less t- chances for air. Um, I'm seeing more of staffing where they're making sure that the, the there's two people on at all times to help each other. Um, even at night shift, there's somebody to call if it have to call the, the other. If you're like been working in children's, you, you have an adult person to call too to double check. But there's ways so that you have communication. I think that's the biggest. Another thing is communication is free. You can just say something to everybody, and it can catch. I mean, like every like I was saying before, if you could just talk and say. This keeps coming up instead of waiting until now we have 15 of the same air. If we just talk about it, maybe we can reduce it to down to one time it happened. But now we'll just see if we can prevent it from keep occurring shift after shift after shift. So do you do you have any advice in creating that? I, you know, that culture of safety, I know, takes years, maybe even decades yeah. to create. But if you can create it, then, you know, it is a space where people are comfortable brainstorming and throwing ideas around asking for a second set of eyes without feeling mm-hmm. like there's any egos involved and, you know, hopefully ultimately reporting errors. And um, what have you found? What is unique in the facilities that have that? What I found is if we can reach the students when they're in their training period, I do, I do like a lecture to the case medical students and then I do for their nurses, and then I do for the community colleges. I talk to their nursing program. They come back and say that they are more willing to question everything before they, you know, they say, "I'm, I'm new, I'm learning." There, there was a time when you got out of school, you were that you were kind of like showed real quickly, and then that was it. You were not, you weren't told to keep questioning if you still didn't feel comfortable. So I've seen a lot more of them coming back and, and, you know, giving me examples of what's occurring and they're seeing where it could change. And so they're going back and telling the nurse who's working with them, you know, we, you guys need to try this. And they've said that coming back after the, they've been on working with the same staff for a couple of weeks on their training, that these nurses, even pharmacists are more open to making these changes and they talk about it. So that was one that I did see that makes a difference is if we can reach and talk, I'm knowing more and more schools are talking about medical safety so that the that kids are get learning when they're in school. So then when they go on to work in the hospital or even in the retail setting or whatever, or in doctor's office, they're more likely going to ask, well, what is your, what, what, what do you do to make it safe for me? Um, they're asking, and I try to encourage that when I'm telling my, telling my story, I say, Hey, 
ask them what kind of program do they have for medical safety? Do you get trained in the job? Do you have, is there a reporting system? Is there someone, you know, on duty that they can talk to if they feel guilt, uh, bad about something? Or is there a way that, th- is there any che- teaching modules in case they don't feel comfortable giving a certain drug or something? I, I try to encourage them to ask those questions because I think it's education that's going to reduce those medical errors as well. So I've seen a lot of people write me letters and, and give me feedback. You know, because I'll come the beginning of the lect- their semester, and then my my friend who who teaches the nurse has me come in at the end, and we just talk about what did they learn, and and it becomes like a two hour session of learning how, all these things that they've caught and like what they know now to be more careful about, and like they'll speak up and say you shouldn't be working in this condition, like you know they'll they'll be the squeaky wheel because they're not going to lose anything because they'll bring up to their instructor to and they'll say something to the institution that this is not safe. So it's again more and more people speaking up makes a big difference because like you said it's hard to change people's minds and ideas. Um we've been able a lot of times when Chris and I were um lecturing we we talked to the boards because I think you need to get involved with the boards of, of the hospitals, the you know presidents. And you'd be amazed how many presidents of a lot of the institutions are on board because they don't want to pay out these huge dollar amounts for these stupid errors. And a lot of them are really dumb errors. And then they also just want to keep their staff and, and, and patients safe. They don't want to have a bad reputation of, of being, you know, mistakes having occurred and everything. And a lot of things I've noticed too is there's a small group of people where they're when an error occurs, they're 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 working on having the person who made the mistake confront the patient with somebody as a mediator to try to stop this from escalating to their saying, I feel you know, have them say if they the patient wants to talk to someone and the and the caregiver wants to talk, they work together and have them talk and say, I feel so horrible this happened to you. And I don't want to, I, I, I'm in, and say, be honest, I, I'm, I've learned from my mistake and I'm going to make sure that just doesn't occur to somebody else. And it breaks down that the patient isn't angry. There's a lot of people that something happens to them and they're very angry. And if they're just a communication, you don't even have to say that person made the mistake. You can have somebody from that department come and talk to the patient and say, we are very sorry that this occurred. And we want you, we will do everything possible to make it right. For, and we do not want this to occur again to somebody else. And it's made a difference. I thought a lot of people were scared about that because they thought, well, you're sharing so much information. They're going to want to sue more. But they found that it, it quieted down that thinking of they didn't care. Well, I should just sue them. I'll get this much money for them. for They, they hurt me. And it just, it's an, a little sub factor but i think it's really making a difference too it's just you know like i said even if it's not that person it's a representative just and i did this when i was working on hospice and i had a pharmacist who didn't know what they were doing and i shouldn't have put them on on the night shift for doing that and i ended up going in and making the dosage but it was like the poor patient was and the lab, they needed the medicines right away. And I went and, and faced the family and explained to them that I was really sorry that this occurred. And 
I think I made a big difference because it, it could have escalated to something else. But the fact that I admitted that this was wrong and I and I told him what I was going to do differently, and I I I, I kind of relieved that situation so that because that was almost it was an error because there, that person didn't feel comfortable with their doing that that night to send out a cartridge of morphine, and I didn't realize when we hired this person how they didn't know enough and like I I didn't know that the, my technician didn't know this other pharmacist didn't feel comfortable. So it was another, this was before this happened to me, but I had learned from that to talk to people and try to appease the situation. And the family was grateful and they, they just, they wanted to hear someone just be honest with them. So it's yeah. not a perfect picture, but you know, it, that also helps in, and again, it's the, that communication of, you know, people will be more likely less angry at you if you just omit something. So if it's not to the patient, it's like, Hey, that I've done, I, this happened to me. I want this not to happen to another nurse on the floor. I don't want this to happen, you know, to another patient. So again, it's breaking down those, those barriers of, we don't talk about, we just push it under the rug. We need, we, we have to talk about it. And yeah, so and the data I really think that makes it makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that there's a lot written about it from a risk management consideration mm-hmm. and that it absolutely makes sense. And um, I am curious, especially in your personal situation and with the beautiful relationship that you and Chris Jerry have today, was it also simply therapeutic to be able to have that conversation with? It was him? because when we got to sit down for the first time together, I was able to like, what I wanted to do that, that night that it occurred, I was able to say, I am so sorry this happened to Emily. I was able to, you know, I wasn't even allowed to say anything when, when this escalated, you know, and I wanted to talk to them. And I think that's what they, especially him at the time, he just wanted someone to say, hey, we messed up. Let's, we're sorry. And the hospital did their best of, you know, appeasing them and, you know, settling and everything but i think that jerry's really just wanted you know someone to say i'm sorry and really it it wasn't really done until that day when we both sat down you know everybody deals with grief differently i um unfortunately kelly was more angry at me and she had every right to be and that's how you know and so when her and her father um decided to, to make this go to civil, they they didn't get what they wanted from me. And I, I thought I sent them a letter and everything and and it, it never got to them. And that made Chris sad too, because he he didn't know how this had escalated because by then his unfortunate the fact that their marriage got it, it kind of destroyed their marriage going through all this grief about their child. It was hard for him. And then when I think we got to sit down. He was able to say sorry to me as well as I said sorry to him. And we realized it was time to d- take this negative and make something positive of it. And we were lucky. He had a wonderful girlfriend at the time that really she talked to him and was able to like, hey, I think you really need to talk to this guy and like tell him how you feel, you know, and Chris was never really angry with me, but I, he at least was able to express how he felt. He said, I felt so much anger in the beginning, but then I felt, then I realized when I researched all this stuff that you weren't the one 
main person involved in this. You were the kind of scapegoat. It was a, it made me again, that was like my second step of my healing process because I, I started to find out first that there was other people like me and that there was ways to go on with my life. And then secondly, being the forgiveness that I felt I needed to get something to alleviate a lot of the guilt. Because when I was lecturing, I was just, I was, everybody said, I just sounds like you're just miserable. You're, you're just horrible. And I was, I was because I felt a lot of guilt. I mean, unfortunately nothing happened to the technician because they pretty much pressed her. They said, if she would testify against me, then she wouldn't have to go through the same thing. Now she still is living with it and we tried to contact her, but I I know she's living with a lot of guilt and she's going to have to do that with the rest of her life. It's hard. I mean, we talk about that. There's such a, one of my slides when I do the talk is there's like six steps and at the six step, it's where are you going to go from here? You go through the grief and all this stuff and you go through the learning. And if some of us get trained and counseled, some of us, have to forget about it and go on with it. And some of us get let go or, you know, so there's at the end of the chart, there's usually three arrows. One is you move on and you, and everybody learns from it and you thrive in your job. Then there's those who kind of live with it. They're miserable. They have, they they begin to hate their job and everything. And then there's those who just fall out. They drop out of the profession and everything. And when, in my situation, because none of these things were done, counseling and support and letting the person still work in the job. It affected me as pharmacist. The technician never practiced anymore. The nurse who was who gave the dose, she ended up changing uh, careers so she wasn't even doing nursing anymore. And the doctor got out of oncology. So that right there was four people that were four professionals that could have continue to do their job and do and make a difference in people's lives and they all change their, their lives change. So that's why it's so important to be this special person, shoulder to cry on person who's going to step in and take care of the problems. It's so necessary. You know, we're going to avoid those career changes, avoid suicide, avoid burnout, we're going to avoid all these things that because the people are living with the guilt and all that it, it's, we can avoid a lot of that stuff. And again, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I go over it, say this all the time, but it's education. It's just use it as a learning experience, not as a punishment. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to see anybody human. else. I mean, I'm going to try to do the, my darndest to go down to Tennessee right now and help Ron Deronda with her, um, case because I know she is felt so much guilt she pleaded guilty but I really jail is not going to solve the solution and solve her problem she needs to do is is lecture and tell her story and tell how the pictures machines that this has got to stop because everybody shook their you know said oh I know this happens still in my job this happens everywhere so why should one person be punished for all, it's the same mistake that's occurring over and over and over. And uh, and use this as a learning, like, we got to fix this, the system and the fix this machine so that nobody can override it. It was like in my situation, when we would make the nutritional bags, the, they call them TPNs, um, 
if there was opportunities for the technician when they were entering the orders and to override when there was too much of a concentration added and that and if the pharmacist wasn't double checking things carefully, it could, could be missed. And the, you know, there should be no technician should be able to override a system. And I, I've worked at two institutions where there was always issues with that, and the pharmacist had to go in and fix it. You know, but it was they couldn't stop. They have a stop in there to, to prevent some person from entering the wrong dosage or wrong amount. So that's you know, again, a system. We really we have to have better computer programs. We, I mean, there's just so many meds coming out. We can't keep track of everything and all the different interactions and, you know, there's too many sound alikes and, you know, yes. so it's just, again, we, 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 we got to get better computer programs out there that are going to have red flags on there that just say, can't dispense this. It's going to cause this, this, and this issue. Or, you know, you, you, you put, pick, you know, when you're scanning it, up, oh, you pick the wrong medication. This one can't, you know, it's just, again, it's just, we, it's good, better computer programs, better uh, ways of stopping from, you know, sending out the wrong, being able to grab the wrong dosage and these Pixis machines and even in the drawers, because a lot of the drawers are locked and they can only pull out the drawer for that patient, but by the fact that they scan the patient and, and then scan their thing. So there's, there's systems that there, there's always ways to override it. You know, because I've seen hospitals where they have a, a whole page of the patient's ID on one page and they get to scan it and get the, grab the meds and go to the room. So it defeats the whole locking the drawer and everything. So mm -hmm. there's always ways that humans are creative to override things and stuff. You, you'll find it. And people share that. And I try to say, make sure that you're not doing this. So. Yeah. Right. Instead of telling that in orientation, let's talk yeah. about reporting and sharing yeah. information. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm praying, you know, now we, we've seen what, what happened to Deronda. I, I, I hope that it's not going to make people then be afraid to report errors and, and do this report, you know, and not let this thing escalate. I don't know why um, this happened and occurred in, 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 why it didn't stay in the hospital. I'm, I, I don't know if it was, again, a family member or something that wanted this to go to court. There's still, it's it's very scary that we, we don't, it, it oversteps malpractice. You think you're, you're pre protected by malpractice and that's not necessarily true anymore. And that doesn't help you when you become a, uh, in a civil case. That doesn't pay for your, your costs of being sued. None of that stuff. That's all out of your own pocket. So that was an issue that I was like, oh, wow. And I, I just, I'm, I now paid 75 grand to pay for lawyers to try to keep me out of jail and, and to fight this. And that, that you, and you don't have your job. So you can't even, you're, you're borrowing from this thing and that to, to pay that. It, it's scary when you're going through that. You, I, 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 I just hope she has somebody there that's listening and talking. I, I've read articles that, you know, people are trying to show their support, but it, it, they need to have bodies down there when she's being sentenced soon that, that can speak out before. Because um, when I was um, sentenced, they waited and they delayed mine and that um, judge had a surgery procedure done and he changed his whole mind of what he was going to sentence me by what had happened to him. So I was using an example even by him because something happened during his 
stay at the hospital. This was shared with you by my lawyers afterwards, but because I was only, the, everything was like, I was only supposed to um, do home arrest and then everything changed. I didn't know I was going into jail that day. It was all of a sudden this, you're, you have to serve a year of jail, a year of home arrest and uh, 800 hours of community service. And then he decided I'm going to cut that in half. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to jail. I did, I was like, it was a eye-waking experience because I'm like, I, I, I didn't know this was going to happen to me. I thought, you know, we had talked it through that I would get a less punishment of it. And I thought the fact that I was lecturing and everything that I would be a better penance because I was showing, I was learning from this mistake and that I was helping others prevent having the same thing happen to them. But it didn't, the court system didn't really look at it that way. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm thankful for everything you did afterwards yeah. with it, for sure. Have I answered um, a lot of your things? Have I- you have. Yeah, you um, you gave us tons of great information. I would love for you to end with one last piece of advice for mm-hmm. infusion center owners and operators. What's what's something tangible that they can do tomorrow in their center? If they can possibly make sure they have some sort of bar scanning going on, and if they can afford the opportunity to photograph when the technicians are making the solutions, I think those are two of the biggest helps because one pharmacist can't watch everything that's being done. And we're always putting, you know, clear into clear. And, and you also need to make sure you have the best working conditions because so many of us are given a space that was just left over in a hospital or or in an institution and that it's not necessarily safe enough to be really doing what you're doing. And we saw that um, there was a pharmacist who um, was prosecuted for giving out contaminated eye drops that blinded a bunch of people in, in the New England states and stuff. So, and now he's serving seven years in jail right now. So you really want to make sure you have the best conditions for your workers and the safest conditions for the patients that you're p- taking care of, because that's a new thing too. They're going after in, in the setting. If, if you're worried about being taken to different levels, we all don't want to open our mouths when we're working in these bad conditions. Well, if you don't open your mouth, that situation could come about, you know, and, I don't know the whole story. I mean, I got two different stories, but I believe that they probably said something about the bad working conditions, but they didn't say enough. And you, you really got to say, hey, I don't want to be another Eric. I don't want to be another Julie. Or You know, uh, Chris has his image of Emily put on a lot of the p- pediatric doses and it reminds people to take a little extra time. And some of the hospitals have a picture of Emily. So they make, they look at that every day and they know they're doing this to make sure that no other Emily occurs. And I think that's the, the amazing thing to do is you, you in the back of your mind, you're going to make sure that you're going to try to do the least amount of harm to anybody because you, you see her face, you, you know, that everybody you're taking care of could be one of your family members. So I just, just have it the, Take, a, take advantage, if you can afford it, take advantage of the technology out there because I think that's going to make things run the smoothest. Have an opportunity if you're overwhelmed, have a stopping moment. If it means 
having the staff take a five minute break, everybody just walk away and then come back fresh. Um, and then, you know, make sure the conditions are great because I still keep reading about those and, you know, I, a lot of a lot of pharmacists are they're going after the pharmacists that are compounding. So these IVs are considered compounding, and they're they're, they're having a lot of new new laws coming out that are going after these, you know, institutions that are compounding from eye drops to IV solutions and stuff. So you want to make sure you got that checklist like the pilots have. You're doing everything on that list, and have it at every station. You know, they they look at this checklist and before it goes out or is delivered they they've gone through that so that's my advice okay thank you so much for that and and honestly eric thank you for being willing to share your your story and the tragedy that you went through um especially in the spirit of helping other healthcare workers hopefully avoid that and um thank you to you and chris cherry for all the work that you guys continue to do we well, thank you. really appreciate it and if you can pass along um if anybody wants to contact me if they want to contact you, you can give them my email address or my phone number and they can always contact you and pass along. I'm more than willing to come and talk to them, help them talk to their institution. If they feel like they're working in bad conditions and someone needs to be the squeaky wheel, because I don't have anything to lose. So I can be their advocate and stay, you know, you can't do this. And I give them plenty of examples of what, what where it escalates from them not doing the right thing because I keep files of that stuff. Okay. So. That is a great offer and I okay. uh, hope everybody takes Eric up on it. And okay. um, we so appreciate your time. All right. Thank you so much. Eric had so many great tangible strategies for supporting healthcare providers and reducing medication errors. I hope that you can utilize them to create a safer infusion space for your patients and caregivers. And if you aren't familiar with the WeInfuse software platform or RX toolkit, take a test drive to see how they can save you time and money in your practice while also creating a safer space for infusions. My name is Amanda Brummett, and we'll catch you in the next episode.